Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, we're focused on the important question of how we can improve care for our seniors. As we've discussed before here on the podcast, the tragedy and the death toll in our nursing homes in this pandemic is an outright scandal. There is really no other way to put it. We have absolutely failed our seniors. Now, importantly, we have seen recent federal commitments to establish national standards for long-term care and to help seniors stay in their own homes. To discuss these commitments, as well as the vaccine rollout to seniors at risk, I'm joined on this episode by Dr. Samir Sinha, a geriatrician currently serving as a co-chair and policy director of the National Institute on Aging, as well as the director of geriatrics at Mount Sinai and the University Health Network. He's also helped to lead past senior strategies, both in Ontario and also nationally, and he has been vocal in the media and in his publications on the need for all levels of government to prioritize our seniors in our policymaking. Samir, thanks so much for joining me. No, thank you for having me, Nate. You have said that the tragedy of deaths in our long-term care homes, the vast majority of deaths in this COVID crisis, were utterly avoidable. You've raised questions about the vaccination process today. Is Ontario, is the country vaccinating those it needs to? It's vaccinating people, but it's not vaccinating those it needs to fast enough. I mean, that's really the sad truth of it right now. It's, it seems that we're in the middle of a political bun fight, that we have premiers hell-bent on embarrassing the federal government and Danny Fortin by saying we could vaccinate quicker if you just sent us more vaccine. But th- the honest truth is the fact is we have more vaccines sitting in fridges than we have in people's arms. The only country where I've actually heard that they've literally been outstripping their vaccine supplies, Israel, where their target right from when they got started was 150,000 vaccines a day. And they were actually vaccinating far more people than that. But we haven't been in that fortunate situation right now. We still have a situation where as of this morning, there were over 90,000 doses in the fridges and freezers in Ontario. And we have 72,000 people living in our long-term care homes who have a one in three risk of dying from COVID if they get that. And why am I concerned about them? Because as of this morning, there are 255 homes in Ontario in outbreak. That's just long-term care. I haven't thrown in the additional 150 retirement homes that are in outbreak. We're currently in crisis. We know what's on fire and we're just standing like looking at this fire with a bucket of water. Like we we actually know what we could do, but for some reason we're not actually running to to you know to stop this from happening. I spoke to David Naylor, Dr. David Naylor recently, and he said in the immediate phase, vaccinate those at risk, those in congregate settings who are more vulnerable, our seniors, and in the second phase, speed at all costs, but precision first. It's absolutely, it's about precision, and it's about using the precious few vaccines we have to begin with to get at the people who need it most. I mean, this is why we actually have a National Advisory Committee on Immunization, NACI, that basically decided who should be getting the vaccine first. And it wasn't just seniors in general, even though those 60 and above represent 96% of our deaths, but it's really focusing in on those living in our long-term care and retirement homes because they've represented 72% of Canada's deaths. But let me give you some examples of countries and jurisdictions that have it right. So in Israel, for example, less than a third of their deaths have occurred in long-term care homes. Yet Israel prioritized this population and they made sure that by January 7th, everyone in their long-term care and retirement homes was vaccinated. They beat out Denmark by a day. Denmark on December 29th received 83,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine. Tiny number. 
But they did the math and they said, we've got 40,000 people living in our care homes. They got them all vaccinated by January 8th. I mean, this is absolutely a race to outdo each other in protecting their populations. So now let's jump to Canada, where 72% of our people have actually, who've died of COVID, have been in these settings. If you want to know front and center, when Canada stands head and shoulders above any other country with the highest proportion of its deaths in long-term care homes, let's look at Ontario. We have 626 homes. We know where they are. We have 72,000 people living in these homes. And from December 21st onwards, we had enough vaccine on our soil that we could have started vaccinating these people. And the key is, is that right now we've delivered over 100,000 vaccines in Ontario. And right now the government, as of yesterday, said only 8,000 residents had actually been vaccinated. Wow. And when I've been pushing the government to say, wait a minute, like we should have been able to set a target by mid-January of vaccinating the 72,000 people in our 626 homes. In Ontario, for some reason, while Israel and Denmark said, let's get them done in the first week of January, Ontario has basically set the target of April. This is compared to Alberta that has said we want to have by the end of January, PI, you know, all these places, by the end of January, we want to have these people vaccinated. Ontario, then after a lot of pressure, said, you know what, we're going to focus on getting the people vaccinated in the hotspot regions of York, Peel, Windsor, Essex, and Toronto. We're going to get them vaccinated by the 21st of January. But that only represents 25% of the people living in our long-term care homes in Ontario. And I'll remind you that right now, the entire province is in lockdown and most of our public health units are experiencing long-term care outbreaks in hundreds and hundreds of homes. So again, I agree with Dr. Naylor. At the very beginning, when you have only a limited supply, precision is what you need and speed, frankly, I would say. You can have a bit of both, for example. But right now, we've clearly heard that the general's orders in Ontario have been speed over precision. And that's why we're now hearing that we've got hospital executives that do public relations. We've got hospital workers that don't have patient-facing roles who are rolling up their sleeve and getting vaccines, while since December 21st, we've had over 400 residents of long-term care and retirement homes and two frontline workers in these homes die. And frankly, that's happened under our watch and that doesn't represent precision. That, 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 frankly, is a senicide because, frankly, we have the tools in front of us to save lives. And for some reason, we do not have the political will to actually end this horror show now. And in terms of other immediate steps that we could take to address the needs of our seniors in long-term care and retirement homes, your National Institute on Aging has written about the impact of isolation and the need for a more balanced approach that one prevents the introduction of COVID, but also allows family caregivers and visitors to provide that much needed support. Do you think that still needs to be on the table going forward? And if so, what does that look like? The other biggest issue right now, I'd say, is beyond getting these people vaccinated, because now that we actually have something that can stop people, frontline workers in these homes and their residents, especially from dying, is getting a vaccination into everybody's arms as soon as possible. That needs to be our highest priority. But the other challenge right now we're having, Nate, is that we have over 908 homes across the country that are currently in outbreak, and close to half of those homes are actually just in Ontario alone. 
why is Ontario performing so poorly compared to other jurisdictions in the second wave? Partly it's because, you know, unlike BC and Quebec that were also hard hit during the first wave, they realize that staffing is at the heart of trying to protect residents in these homes and providing them the support they need. And especially when you have a home and outbreak, that's when your staffing really gets devastated. And if you don't actually improve the staffing levels in our homes in the first place, when Ontario's homes were providing less than the right amount of care before the pandemic, only two hours and 45 minutes, when the government's own staffing commission came out and said, you should be providing at least four hours a day, you can appreciate these understaffed places already that are being devastated. We have 40% of our long-term care homes in outbreak right now. And you can imagine that when there's an outbreak, staff get sick. And when staff are off for at least 14 days, then who are the other staff left behind to provide the care that we need? And so what you've seen in Quebec, for example, is Quebec actually made the determination in May to hire 10,000 new frontline workers. BC is on a hiring spree to hire 7,500 new workers. Ontario never actually made such an effort to do that. And frankly, if we don't fix our staffing levels ASAP, then we just make everything worse. But this is partly why Quebec, for example, led the country back in May by actually welcoming family caregivers back in. Because if you think about people say, well, what, what exactly is a family caregiver? We hear that term quite a bit. A lot of people would just assume that when I go and visit my mom in a care home, for example, it's just for a social visit. And for some people, it is. It's just purely social. It's just going by, sharing a laugh, you know, just checking in on each other and, and saying hi. But for so many other Canadians who've got loved ones in our care homes, they're actually what we call essential family caregivers. This is the spouse who goes in because her husband of 60 years, for example, will eat better when she's at his side or yeah. when she feeds him. This is the father who, for example, will not bathe unless it's his daughter helping to do the bathing or doing the dressing as well. And so I have many patients, for example, whose loved ones, when they go into care, it's their family members who are not going in once a week but are going in multiple times a day to provide support and care. And sadly, at the beginning of this pandemic, we shut all of them out. We basically said, look, we worry that you might be bringing the virus in like the staff. So we're just going to keep you out and we're going to leave the staff to do things. But then you can imagine this had a devastating consequence because now you have understaffed homes in the first place where these essential family caregivers were often picking up the slack, who are now shut out. So it just burdened the staff even more. And then you can imagine during an outbreak, during the first wave, when you have even less staff around to try and provide care for residents, or you're now bringing in temporary people who don't even know the residents to begin with, yeah. it actually became a horror show. And that's why Quebec, frankly, cynically in May, when they said, we are going to hire 10,000 new workers, they also said, and we are welcoming essential family caregivers back into the home. Because frankly, without them, who would be providing the care. But in by July, it was so horrific that now with our homes largely out of outbreak, the, the first wave receding, we still saw that people could do an outdoor visit maybe for 30 minutes once a week, 
but family caregivers still couldn't go in the home to provide the care and support they did. So our National Institute on Aging, as you're referring to, we put out guidance called Finding the Right Balance. Um, and that was guidance where we basically said, you can welcome family caregivers in. In fact, they actually want to help. They don't want to cause harm. And in fact, if you treat them like staff, if you make sure that they know what the IPAC protocols are, the infection prevention control protocols, and how to use PPE, you'll find that there's no evidence around the world of family caregivers causing outbreaks and bringing COVID in because they have a vested interest in actually keeping the virus out. But when you actually don't support them, you're not supporting the residents. And frankly, when we don't actually provide good staffing and staffing supports, for example, we're also not supporting the residents. So it's a combination of A, don't keep family caregivers locked out. And in many jurisdictions, they've significantly improved their policies during the pandemic, including in Ontario, where they adopted our NIA guidance and they even adopted our recommendations that even during an outbreak, we shouldn't shed out caregivers. However, it has still been happening in Ontario. It's still happening around the country and especially in BC, where family caregiver access has been significantly curtailed. But we need to continue to working on improving caregiver access. Number two, we need to fix the staffing issues immediately. And finally, we've got vaccine. We've got more than enough vaccine available. And this silly bun fight between the premiers and the federal government in terms of saying, you know, we don't have enough vaccine. You have enough vaccine. At the end of the day, what sickens me is that so few frontline workers in these homes and more importantly, the residents are getting prioritized for vaccination. And that to me tells me that it seems like we're more interested in scoring political points rather than actually saving lives. And that's what's the most disappointing to me. Well, with that short term view, it maybe bodes poorly for the longer term view around national standards, because there is likely to be another fight as between federal and provincial governments. We've said very clearly in our recent throne speech that we want national standards for long-term care so that seniors get the best support possible. I've spoken to Pat Armstrong previously about the need, you talk staffing, but staffing ratios as an element of that, better support for workers as an element of that, better training as an element of that. Clearly Canadians have seen this tragedy and want action and and want stronger supports in long-term care and our nursing homes. First, are you optimistic about the establishment of national standards? Do you think it's a necessity? And two, what should those standards look like? Yeah, no, it's 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 a terrific question because I think right now, um, you talked about, you know, there might be a fight upon us. Well, the fight already began. We already heard that right now Canadians are unified and being concerned about the state of long-term care. This is not an Ontario issue. This is not a Quebec issue. In fact, provinces like Manitoba and Saskatchewan were sitting pretty at the beginning of the second wave because, frankly, they got a bit of a free pass during the first wave. They didn't really have much in the way of community transmission, and they didn't have much in the way of long long-term care homes, but I think it gave them a false sense of security that they felt that they were doing everything possible when they actually weren't. And so what we actually saw was where people thought this might have been during the first wave, a BC, Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, and Nova Scotia issue. This has now become an absolute pan-Canadian issue where we've seen Saskatchewan Alberta and Manitoba significantly have a high proportion of of deaths and places in Ontario and Quebec and BC that have said, you know, we've taken action. Well, we're still learning that, you know, what we actually had problems all throughout our long-term care system. And this is something that unifies us as a country. And, And partly, you know, the original sin was when we were creating Medicare back in 1966, 
we enshrine two things, physician services and hospital services. We deliberately excluded as a country of 27 year olds, that was our median age at the time, we deliberately excluded the provision of long-term care and pharmacare, right? These are two key things that we left out. So our Western European nations that actually created universal healthcare systems are like, you call it universal healthcare in Canada, but it's kind of, it's a bit of a straw dog there because, you know, it's like a two-legged stool. You're missing kind of another key element or two other key elements that would really make your care universal and frankly, more efficient. And so when you actually think about what we've done is we've actually left an entire important area of national importance to the provinces and territories that frankly have said, look, if the federal government isn't giving us money to provide this level of care, we're going to do it in some way or another because it helps protect our hospital funding situations and other things. But Canada as a country overall, when you aggregate all of our spending, we spend 30% less than the OECD average on our spending on long-term care. The other thing is that we spend 87% of every long-term care dollar in Canada on warehousing older people rather than caring for them in their homes where they want to be, which frankly is far cheaper and actually more preferable. So when you think about national long-term care standards, do we need them? Absolutely, right? Because frankly, this is not about Ontario, you need to pull up your socks. This is, we actually need to think about something that we say, this is the standard of care that that Canadians should be able to expect wherever they are. And when you think about standards, you know, what could those standards entail? Well, I mean, part of it could be around facility design. We've heard everything during this pandemic about issues of HVACs, you know, in terms of air circulation. Right. Uh, we heard it came to light for many Canadians that actually many of the older Ontario nursing homes, and that's about half of them, and the majority of Quebec nursing homes, especially the older ones, don't actually have air conditioning in resident rooms, only in central areas. And you realize, oh, that's really inconvenient because during, you know, when it's hot in the summer, usually put everybody out of the rooms close together in the common room. Well, you can't do that during a pandemic. Um, And then people realize that we don't have air conditioning in the homes of vulnerable people. Like, that's ridiculous. So you think about just from a facility design standpoint, we've also realized that when you have older design standards where you have more than two people to a room or frankly, more than one person to a room, that significantly increases the risk of transmitting viruses and people dying. So we already have clues about what should be the building design standards because right now the federal government, it has infrastructure dollars that it gives. And frankly, I wouldn't want any of my federal tax dollars going to build a death trap, frankly, let's just be clear. I would want to make sure that if it was going to build a shiny new nursing home, that that was being built to the absolute best standards that we know we should be hearing to. But it's not just about the buildings, it's about the care that happens in them. And again, what we've heard, for example, is that most of the provinces and territories, well, all the provinces and territories are underfunding the provision of long-term care. And when you underfund the system, you cut corners. You cut corners in terms of how you staff these homes. You cut corners in terms of the quality of care that eventually occurs. I think it's one of those things where, you know, some people have come out and said, we should just mandate four hours of care. Um, And that four hour number has been floating around for years. The key is that was a number that was determined 
10 years ago. And now we have Ontario that said that we're going to be the first province to reach that standard by 2024, 2025. The key is that right now, I don't even know if four hours is actually what people need. I think it might even be more than that to a certain extent. So we have to be very careful about not setting ourselves up for failure by saying it's four hours because four hours may not be enough. And then we're still doing a disservice. The other aspect is there are colleagues who have really said various professional associations, oh, well, we need 35 minutes of of a nurse, 25 minutes of a pharmacist, 35 minutes of that, you know, these sorts of things. And the challenge is, is that if we adhere to strict standards based on this is how many minutes of times you have, we have homes in Ontario that can't even recruit an RN. We have right. homes in Ontario that can't get adequate PSWs you know, to staff them. We have homes that don't even have medical directors, for example. How do we actually understand what is the care that people need? How do we make sure that we're meeting the care that these people need in, in what we would determine is good care? And then how do we hold homes to a standard that says, are you meeting those care needs, for example? So if we don't have enough personal support workers, maybe we staff the home with only RNs, for example. If we don't have a doctor, maybe we can have an NP be the medical director. So this is where we have to really be careful about creating standards that achieve high quality care rather than just give us tick boxes to say yes or no, are you meeting these standards or not? But I think this is actually what we need to work towards. The problem, the problem is right now, you've had a lot of the premiers that have banded together and say, give us $28 billion more for healthcare. We'll put that as well towards long-term care because we just need more money because we know what we're doing. I would actually argue back to the premiers. I don't really think that's the case. I think you've made some valiant attempts and some of you have done some good things during this pandemic, but I really do think we need to have national standards. And I'm, I'm really happy that our prime minister has actually pushed back with some moral authority to say, you know what, Canadians don't think that you've got this. In fact, actually, I'm happy to give you money to improve long-term care, but it's got to be done with standards in place. And those standards aren't, this is my frustration is, The conversation isn't, we are going to impose standards on you that we are going to develop on our own. This is a conversation as between provinces and the federal government to say, let's examine where the experts are at in terms of their advice on staffing ratios, on the wage support and the labor rights that should be exercised and received by workers in these facilities, looking at building and and design of homes, as, as you say, but put everything on the table and then work in a collaborative way, which is, I think, what Canadians would expect, knowing that this is such of such central importance to them out of this pandemic. And and knowing that this problem predates the pandemic has just been glaringly and, and, and tragically highlighted. But working in that collaborative fashion, we ought to be able to establish national standards. And, and that's ultimately, I think, what Canadians expect of us. That's exactly what Canadians expect of us, because, you know, here's the reality. Our baby boomers started turning 65 in 2011. By 2030, just within a decade, we're going to have one in four Canadians being older adults. And our baby boomers are going to start turning 685 by that point. And the key is once you're in your 80s, you have a one in three chance of ending up in a retirement or a long-term care home, where actually if you survey, we did a survey through the National Institute on Aging back in the summer, and we actually found that 100% of older Canadians said they don't want to end up in a long-term care home. We found that they want to age at home for as long as possible, right? And then when you actually ask Canadians' opinions about how many of you would be amenable to going into a home 
down the road, well, 60% of Canadians and 70% of older Canadians said, no, uh, not for me, not for my loved ones, like uh, no deal. Because again, people have lost faith. So they expect it, you know, and, you know, I think, uh, I think the prime minister actually had a good point by saying, you can say you don't want to participate in this. That's fine. We will work with those who do. And we will give those who do, we'll give them money. You know, like exactly. that's what we'll do. Exactly. But this is going to be a collaborative thing. But if you don't want to collaborate, that's fine. But Premier Kenny, you can go back to Albertans with your record of having your province have the highest number of its homes having experienced an outbreak, having the majority of your deaths in your province occur in these homes. And you can say that we are refusing money from Ottawa because we don't want to participate in national standards and we think we're doing just fine. I don't think that's going to wash over well with any Albertan. I don't think that would wash over with any Ontarian or any Nova Scotian. I think, frankly, Canadians expect us to finally fix this, especially when all of us are aspiring to get older and none of us want this to be in front of us when we've just seen how much we are so quickly able to abandon our seniors in a pandemic and literally leave them to die behind closed doors. When it comes to attaching strings to federal support, there are obvious areas for national standards, and you've identified a number of them. A number of constituents have reached out to express concern reading the numbers, as I have, that when you look at municipal homes, not-for-profit homes, and then for-profit homes, that obviously in the for-profit homes, dollars that otherwise might go to staff are going to shareholders and, and executives. And the quality of care, at least in this pandemic, seems to have been worse in the for-profit sector. A more challenging conversation, but when you look at strings attached to federal dollars, should there be an impetus to prioritize nonprofit care? I think the challenge with this is it's the reality that right now we we talk about municipal homes and not-for-profit homes doing better than for-profit homes. The challenge that we actually have is that all these homes to begin with are being underfunded by their provincial government. So if we look in Ontario, I'll give that as an example. Right now, 60% of the homes are for-profit, about another 25% are actually not-for-profit. And then you have the remainder being municipally owned homes, for example. Now you look at what actually happens, all of the homes get paid the same amount to provide care per person. And they're basically funded at the rate of two hours and 45 minutes per day per resident. But here's the catch, right? The Ontario government's own staffing study says that you should be actually funding these homes to providing four hours of care a day. So right off the bat, we're underfunding everybody, you know, no matter who you are. That's that's point number one. Point two is the reason why you see better care standards being achieved in municipal homes and not for profit homes is because municipalities like Toronto last year, I'm the co-chair of the city of Toronto senior strategy. We actually went to council and the mayor and said, you know what, to be able to provide four hours of care a day, uh, we need 24 million extra dollars to do this because frankly, this is the right thing to do. And you know what, council, no debate. They were like, absolutely. And they also said, you know, if the province isn't going to pony up with the $24 million, we'll do it. And where are we getting that money from? Through property taxes. And you know what? I am more than happy to know my money is going to provide better care in a city-owned home, in a home that I actually own as a city taxpayer, 
I'm, I'm happy to do that. Not-for-profits, they got bake sales going on. They've got charitable contributions. And that's why they end up funding more hours of care in their homes. We're not for, uh, we're for-profit corporations, for example. They're working in the envelope that the government gives them. And if the government tells you, you can do this in two hours and 45 minutes, they're going to try. Because frankly, you know, who would blame them for trying to work within the envelope that the government says, you know, should be adequate enough? The other thing, too, is, you know, this is something that people don't always see, Nate, is the fact that, you know, you've got hospitals like my hospital, University Health Network. You've got West Park, for example. You've got other ones that are noted in Toronto that actually own long-term care homes, right? These are not-for-profit corporations, for example. And you know what? You know who runs their homes? They have for-profit companies running their homes. And this is the key thing. So wait a minute. So we could just make a rule overnight saying no for-profit ownership of homes, make it all not-for-profit. But again, you know, why are not-for-profits hiring for-profit corporations to run their homes? Because again, when you're not given a, enough of a funding envelope, you're going to try and find margins and try and work in the envelope. Because again, nobody running these homes is trying to do it on a charitable way. And frankly, when you're underfunding a system in the first place and relying on the good graces of taxpayers, or charitable donations to try and make a system work, that's where the fundamental problems begin. And I think if we don't address that issue, right. then I think, you know, then then we're missing the point. But my view is I'm a bit agnostic in saying whether it's a municipal or not-for-profit, because we've had some spectacular outbreaks in not-for-profit homes. We've had some spectacular outbreaks in municipal homes. And the thing that tends to actually more unify these places in particular is not that it's a for-profit kind of situation. It's more that many of these homes that have experienced the worst outbreaks are these homes that are still designed to 1972 design standards, four people to a room, sharing one bathroom. And frankly, if you level the playing field where everybody got payment for four hours of care a day, number one, we were dealing with modern design standards, for example, then you'd actually see a much more level playing field. And that's why I think it's easy just to jump to the ideological conclusion, say for-profit evil, not-for-profit good. I kind of believe, you know, I kind of believe that, to be honest. But the problem is, is I think that a lot of these ideological discussions don't actually delve deeper and say, why is there such a glaring issue? And why are we seeing these disparities? And it's the fact of what we just talked about. And so the the starting point and the bigger conversation is establish sufficient funding, establish national standards. And with those two items in hand, whether it's not for profit, for profit or municipal delivery, you ought to be able to achieve the outcomes that you want. When when you talk about people staying in their homes and that strong desire, I get it. My my grandmom is angry at my mom because she has been moved from Grimsby into my mom's basement, actually, because my mom renovated it, wanting her close to home and to look after her and needing that care, regular check-ins, not just visiting, but but actually looking after my grandmom. In the throne speech, the big picture promise that everyone took away was national standards, but there was a secondary promise to take additional action to help people stay in their homes longer. Now, your institute has also published a report about bringing long-term care home, virtual long-term care. I remember this goes back to in the nomination process for me. I'd read through the Canadian Medical Association senior strategy and what struck me at the time was it costs over $1,000 a day to keep someone in a hospital and $55 a day for home care. And it always occurred to me that if you could keep people in their homes, you could vastly improve services, saving dollars on the one hand, just to use those dollars then to vastly improve services for the Canadians 
in their homes. Do you think that ought to be part of, as we have this conversation about national standards, that we actually emphasize not only long-term care, but we emphasize home care as well? Absolutely. You know, I helped develop the CMA's national senior strategy. They, well, they thank you. It. Yeah, they helped. They were a participant in, in our work through the National Institute on Aging on our national senior strategy document, which we just released again, our updated version on National Seniors Day last October. And I'm, I'm hoping that the throne speech was predicated on the fact that, you know, we published our reports, you know, during the summer showing that actually that if you ask uh, older Canadians where they aspire to age, you know, nearly 100% say they want to stay in their homes for as long as possible. So frankly, it's a throne speech that reflects that someone's paying attention to what seniors want. And frankly, why do we should, why should we even care about what they want? Well, you know what, 80% of them vote, right? Twice as much as millennials. So think about that. So then you start saying, okay, well, if this is what they want, and you were just playing with some of the numbers there saying, isn't this a bit of a no brainer? Like a, my, my grandma want to stay in her own home. And if we made it more possible for her to do so, probably be cheaper than actually warehousing her in an institution. Absolutely. And this is what fascinates me. So I'll just run through the numbers for you because I actually, the report they're referring to called Bringing Long-Term Care Home was really about thinking about Ontario's current approach. And I know all about Ontario because since uh, in 2012, I was appointed by the government of Ontario to develop its first senior strategy. And then I subsequently developed its next senior strategy in 2017, always with this common theme. How do you help people age, in, age at home for as long as possible? And the math is this. If you actually look at a person, so let's just say your grandmother really was now, you know, has significant functional issues. She needs help with bathing and and maybe needs some help with meal preparation, other things, things that would, let's say, now make her eligible to be in a nursing home, for example. If we actually have her go into a nursing home, it's about $200 a day to care for her in that setting of, uh, you know, that's that's what the cost is, if you will. If she was actually waiting in a hospital, let's say that she was in hospital and now we were saying she needs to go home. And these are the people we call ALC or alternative level of care. Every day that she's waiting in hospital, it's about $730 a day. And just to give you some perspective on that, we have about 15, 15% of our hospital beds occupied with grandmothers who want to go back to their own homes, but there's inadequate home care available, or we don't have enough long-term care beds available. But when you think about that person who's eligible for a long-term care home, what does it cost to provide them care at home? It's actually about $103 a day. These are all the Ministry of Health's numbers in Ontario. So I'm not just pulling these up or making these up. These are their own numbers and their calculations. So it costs half as much to care for your grandmother with long-term care needs in her own home than it would in a long-term care home. And frankly, if we had actually more home care available, we wouldn't have people waiting for days in hospital. In fact, Denmark actually solved all of this back in the 1980s. They realized that we, we have hospitals filled with older people waiting in line to go to these, these places that they don't want to go to, and they're very expensive to run. And so what Denmark did was they started aggressively investing in growing their home care system. And by doing that, Denmark now has no people waiting in their hospitals to go anywhere because they actually have ample home and community care services. And so much so that they actually don't have people who are prematurely going into a nursing home. And if you actually look at Denmark and how they spend compared to Canada, just to give you perspective. So right now, 1.2% of our GDP is spent on providing long-term care. That includes home and community care and nursing home care. 
The global average, the OECD average, is about 1.7%. So Canada spends about 30% less. But then if you look at Denmark, they spend 2.4% of their GDP on providing long-term care. So double what Canada does. Here's the other thing. We spend 87 cents on the dollar warehousing people in homes, which I just showed you is twice as expensive as caring for them at home. Whereas Denmark actually spends two thirds of their dollars, their long-term year dollars, on caring for people in their homes. Only a third of their dollars on having people cared for in care homes. And by doing that, they're able to support way more people to age in place. And they actually ended up avoiding two things. One is they actually avoided building any new nursing home beds over a 20-year period. And number two, they actually closed thousands of hospital beds. I actually took out an entire team of deputy ministers and other health officials from Canada three years ago to Denmark to meet with the CEO of Healthcare Denmark, meet with their minister of seniors, and like meet with all the officials. Because like, Sinha, you keep talking about Denmark. <laughs> if it's so special, I'm like, if, if you know, come over, let, let, I'll show you. And so literally they went around and I was so, I remember we went to their leading hospital in Denmark. I, I was in heaven because the CEO of that hospital was a geriatrician. The chief of staff was a geriatrician and the chief nurse was a geriatric nurse. And I just had such a blast with them because the CEO, first of all, showed us, you know, as all CEOs like to do with their big egos, look at this brand new hospital that we're building. You know, this is going to be this new state-of-the-art hospital. And he's, I said, well, how many beds does your current hospital have? He said, a thousand beds. But I said, well, how many beds does the new hospital we have? He said, only 800. And he said that with pride, not because that was actually a demotion, but that was a sense of pride. He said, we've done such a good job caring for people in their own homes. We don't need more beds. We can actually shrink. And then I remember, you know, one of my colleagues saying, so how many people do you have here waiting in your hospital, wanting to go home or to, and I remember the geriatric nurse looked at her and said, why would you hold your patients hostage like that? Why wouldn't you provide more? And I loved it. You would call them a hostage. We call them ALC or in Britain, we call them bed blockers. It's just this complete attitude shift. And Denmark has a much more stable healthcare system because they've actually created a system that helps the people age in place. But get this, Nate, the best part is in Denmark, when you turn 75, when your grandmother turns 75, she'll get a knock on the door from a public health nurse who will meet with her and talk about how she can stay independent in her own community. Maybe we get an occupational therapist to come in and look at your home and see if there's any adjustments we can make to help prevent you from falling. Um, do you know how to access home care services? Do you know what the, do you know where the local senior center is if you want to go and socialize with some other people. I mean, that's Denmark's progressive approach. And frankly, this is not rocket science. This is no. just applied common sense. But if we did it, you know, we'd do that. But right now, the challenge is, is that what disappointed me in Ontario is during this pandemic, when people became more resolved to not wanting to end up in a long-term care home, you know, our premier in Ontario announced that we're going to build 30,000 new beds and we're, we're, you know, in the next 10 years, and we're also working on redeveloping 30,000 new beds. So that's rebuilding and building new for a total of 60,000 beds. And I did the math on that because to build a new bed, like forget about the care cost. Remember, that's about $200 a day. Just to build a bed, it's on average about $230,000 to $40,000 a day. And you do the math then times 60,000 beds, that works out to between 12 to $16 billion alone of infrastructure costs wow. to build all of that new real estate, frankly, when, frankly, you know, your grandmother, who's a bit annoyed, frankly, and she has the right to be, 
she had her own home. She had her own bed. They worked perfectly fine for her. But if we actually enabled your grandmother to get access to the care that she wanted and needed to stay in her own home, that would be frankly far cheaper than warehousing her in future in one of these very expensive long-term care homes. We would all benefit as taxpayers, but I sometimes cynically believe that we're all doing this to help developers because those are the only people I think that really do well with 12 to 16 billion of infrastructure dollars to provide care that's twice as expensive for us as taxpayers to provide care for your grandmother just to stay in her own home. So who's actually winning in this game? It right. ain't the older people um, and it ain't the taxpayers. I can Because tell you what that. Denmark is doing clearly respects the autonomy of our seniors. It respects the public purse to a greater degree and it provides greater care in a compassionate way. I guess the bottom line here at the federal level at least is in addition to bringing provinces together on national standards, we should be emphasizing that this is about improving seniors' care overall writ large, and that it should as much be about national standards as it is about improving home care and, and improving services, wraparound support services to, to keep people in their homes where they, where they want to be. My last question is, is, is not so substantive, but you mentioned visiting Denmark and, and having a blast with geriatricians, and I have a constituent who email me to sing your praises. And he was very interested in why you went into geriatrics, because it's not a, a common area for, for folks in medicine to go into, and obviously a really important one when you look at the numbers of Canadians aging. But but what drew you to to the profession in the first place? Why did you go into geriatrics? Well, look, when I, the reason I went to medicine is that I wanted to work with vulnerable populations. I knew that that's where I wanted to dedicate my time and my effort to. And when you think about the most vulnerable population that's universal. It's older adults. And we've really seen the vulnerability of this population during this pandemic front and center. And you have to realize that when people are like, okay, what is this guy? He's a geriatrician. Never heard of that. What is that? Because right now in Canada, we have 85,000 doctors, for example. We have only 302 certified geriatricians. And just to give you, get, to put that in perspective, we have nine times as many pediatricians and everybody's heard of those things, right? Those people. So, and, and remember, just to give you again, a little bit more perspective, three years ago, older Canadians started outnumbering younger Canadians. And yet we have nine times as many pediatricians as we do geriatricians. We're what the New York Times is actually called. We're a rare and endangered species of, of physician. And so why did I go into this? It's because, yes, there are a lot of kids who need great providers, but there are way more older people who need good physicians who are specialized in their care needs. And frankly, during a pandemic, you know, we'll take the time to get on the megaphone and scream into the wind and hope that you can kind of move the ball forward because there's that classic saying that, you know, you can judge a population by how it cares for its most vulnerable people. And I think this pandemic has really showed how much we really care about older Canadians in the first place, how much we care about marginalized Canadians who are homeless, for example, and for those who often are racialized and living in lower income communities. And it's really exposed a lot of ugliness in our society that we love to think that we're all egalitarian and equal, but that's not quite the case. And so when we were just talking about Denmark and you're saying, wow, it sounds like Denmark's like figured it out and like they really respect older people. And it just brings us back to where we started around vaccinations. Because remember, Denmark got 83,000 precious doses of vaccine in a country of about five and a half million people. And what did they say? 
the people who need it most are the people in our long-term care homes. So they divided up their doses in half and they said, these 40,000 go to those people first before we start vaccinating other people, right? That just shows a level of commitment. Whereas here, we have you know, a situation where our long-term care residents across the country, and we have about 500,000 Canadians living in congregate settings, and already in January, we already had 500,000 doses that were in the hands of the provinces. It's really clear who we should have been vaccinating first, but sadly, we didn't make it a priority consistently across the country. And that really tells me a lot about how much more work we need to do as a society and as a people. Well, I hope we hold on to those lessons learned and that the tragedy, if anything, on a going forward basis shows us a way forward. And that if I talk to you five years from now, we can say, well, we're well on our way to becoming Denmark as it relates to looking after our seniors. Because I, I do I do think, you know, there are some issues that so clearly matter on the evidence and you can look at the numbers and, and the opioid crisis is an example. And there are different arguments that politicians bring to bear against taking action or for taking action. The evidence is obvious, but the politics can be challenging. Here, the evidence is obvious and the politics is overwhelmingly demanding action. Canadians are overwhelmingly in, in my, you know, in, in my inbox and in the messages we receive. But I think the same holds true for for politicians of all political stripes that Canadians are demanding action. And and I do hope provinces put down their sores and and we all work collaboratively to get this done. So I, I really appreciate. I, I don't think it's quite the wind you're shouting into. I do really appreciate your advocacy because I think you have really in the media and and, and in your reporting through the National Institute on Aging and more. I, I think you've really brought this into focus as well, and and it's very much appreciated. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Uncommons. Hard to believe it's season two, and I think we've done 60 episodes so far since we started. There are many good reasons, of course, for Dr. Sinha to be my guest on issues of seniors care as the expert that he is. But I also want to highlight that a constituent and listener reached out to suggest his name, and that actually caused me to reach out to Dr. Sinha in the first place. So if you have a topic that you'd like me to tackle, if you have a guest you'd like me to invite and have a conversation with, please do reach out info at beynate.ca. And otherwise, of course, uncommons.ca to subscribe. And please do leave a five-star review if you happen to like what we're doing here. And otherwise, Otherwise, uh, until next time.